0: Let me pray, and we will dive into God's word this morning again. Father, we're grateful for time this morning to come together as the body of Christ. To sing, to worship you for who you are and all that you've done for us through your son. We thank you for your word that it is like honey to our lips that we need it, that we can be satisfied in it. we can know you in a crazy world that we live in, that we can understand better who you are and what you've done through your son for us and how we might live in this broken, fallen world. So we thank you for the opportunity to have your scriptures before us. I pray this morning as we open your word, your very word, that you've revealed yourself to us, that you might, through your spirit, do a work in our hearts. Maybe it's something that needs to change. Maybe it's something that we need to add. Maybe it's something that we need to confess. So work in our hearts this morning as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever heard these words, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Maybe you learned those words in middle school history class, Thomas Jefferson's word in the Declaration of Independence. No, this is not a political sermon. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness of happiness some of the foundational reasons for the existence of this country it's a good dream we often consider this as part of the old at least american dream where people from far and wide many of your ancestors to come here and have more life and more liberty and more opportunity for advancement if you've ever traveled anywhere in the world there's a reason why people line up to come here life liberty and the pursuit of happiness but for those of us who are let's just say, assimilated to the American dream, oftentimes that good and right dream becomes something else. And I think in our day, we might even say if if we had to, we could say that, no, that dream has turned into something else, to consume more, to indulge in more in an autonomous way. See, we can take good things and they can become bad things when they become ruling things. But in any form that the American dream comes in, the question for us this morning is, does it satisfy? Does it ultimately satisfy our souls? Let me just ask you a question this morning. You can answer this question in your head. Finish this sentence. For me to be happy, I need blank. I need to be loved. I need respect. I need money. I need stuff. I need power. I need status. I need sex. I need fun. I need me time. I need work. I need books. I need media. I need a new iPhone. And maybe it's not, maybe the question isn't to be happy, I need blank, period. Maybe it's just to be happy, I need more, comma, more, comma. There's a guy that lived about 3,000 years ago named King Solomon. And before the American dream was the American dream, he lived it. He lived it to its full. Turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we will be in chapter 2 this week. And he's been asking these questions, looking back on life and asking some of these questions, these big questions. Like, do my possessions, do my things, does self-indulgence really please me? Does it satisfy my soul? Does my toil really amount to anything? Is there any gain in it? What's worth living for? What's enough? Ecclesiastes 2, if you need a Bible, there's one probably close to you, page 553, if you need to turn there. We've already discovered last week that Solomon was testing some things out, kind of like a lab rat, but he's looking back on his life where he looks at all the things that he tries to pursue to bring satisfaction and meaning to his life And he comes up with some conclusions. You see, he frames life under the sun, maybe a little bit different when you come to other places in the Bible. Life under the sun is him evaluating life without God. Just under the sun. Chapter 1, we looked at this machine, that the world is just this machine and it has cycles. And it keeps going and going and going. And it doesn't slow down to pat us on the back. It just keeps going and people die. People live and people die and the world keeps going. And ultimately in chapter 1, neither labor, our toil, or working satisfies. He uses this phrase, as Luke said earlier, vanity, vanity. It just means breath or vapor. It, It comes with the idea not of meaningless period, but the idea of futility. The idea that things are fleeting or we can't understand everything. That's what we learned last week. And he said... Later in chapter 1, he set his heart to do some things, to test some things. And he set his heart in chapter 1 to look at intellectualism. And he come to chapter 2, open it there with me. He comes to chapter 2, and he goes to a different place, from intellectualism to what we might call hedonism or pleasure. Let's pick it up there. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 Look along with me as I read. The word should be up here as well. This is Solomon. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vapor, vanity. I said of laughter, there are many doors to pleasure. One of them is laughter, he thinks. Laughter. And his conclusion was, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use of it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So he goes from the comedy club to the bar. My body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold of folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under the sun left to itself. Doing the few few days of their life. Look at verse 4. He switches gears from, I would say, from pleasure to possessions or work. He said, I make great works. I built houses, y'all. He spent 13 years on his primary residence. He spent 11 years, eight months on the temple of God. I don't know what kind of house that was, but it was a huge house. The Bible also says that he spent a lot of time building houses for all his wives. Y'all, he had 700 wives. He built things. He built these houses, and then he planted vineyards, plural. It was like Napa in his backyard. And I made for myself Gardens. Better than moody gardens. And parks. And I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made for myself pools. I've got pictures of his pools here. I know you think you got a good pool. You don't have one like this. Look at these pools. They're, they're known as Solomon's pools. And I did an overshot so you could see it. It holds millions and millions of gallons. And look at these, what these pools are for. They've been helped like Reinforced over the years by the Romans and the Turks over the years. But these are still there in Israel. They've been advanced, but this is in Bethlehem all the way down the valley into Jerusalem to give water. And why did he do it? To water the forest of growing trees. There's not a lot of trees in Israel. Look right there. The growing trees. It also says in other places in Scripture that he had those for his servants and his wives to bathe. I mean, this guy played Minecraft, y'all, for real. (laughs) There's no game. Maybe you like Sims. He played this for real. This was real life. These are the pools. I bought male and female slaves. These are the people doing the work and had slaves who were born in my house. Many had them for years and years, and they were doing the labor On all these projects, I also had great possessions. So you're seeing pleasure and possessions. Look at the possessions he had. I had herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. There's his resume. He's telling you, I got more than anybody. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and providences. I don't know how people come up with this. I think they look at scripture, but apparently somebody guesstimated that the gold that he had was worth like $2.2 trillion. Not bad. In 1 Chronicles chapter 9, speaking of his silver, he had so much silver, y'all, that it was just like as abundant as the little stones outside. You know, people who are incredibly wealthy, it doesn't matter if it's a $100 barrel or a penny, it's all the same. That's how wealthy... King Solomon was. Gold and treasure and kings and providences. Look at this. I got singers like I paid for the band. Both men and women and many concubines. He had 300. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines back to pleasure. The delight of the sons of men. So, here's a conclusion summary. So I became great. That's how he viewed greatness. I became great and surpassed all those who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, because God gave it to him. He was also being foolish here, wasn't he? And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, because he has means, he can be the king of hedonism. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Listen, if King Solomon would have been on the show, Cribs, he could have taken up a whole season. If you're an old-timer, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. He had that much. He goes through his resume here. But verse 11, you got to notice this. Because somewhere deep down, you're going, you know what? I'd like to try that. I think I could do better than Solomon, let's be honest. You know, you get on HAR.com, if you've been around here, and you look at the $14 million house... I'm just looking for things put in my house. We all do this. I would have done better. Look at his conclusion. Verse 11. Be ready to be depressed. Then I considered all that my hands had done, architecture, agriculture, money, wealth, more than anybody else in Jerusalem, and the toil I'd expended in doing it. So he's making a measurement, and behold, all was what? awesome, living my best life now, all was vanity, futile, worthless. In the end, vanity, striving after wind. You can't catch it. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You see, the king of hedonism and materialism which those things can be temporarily enjoyed. But if that's the way in which you're looking, the lens in which you're looking through life to bring you meaning and satisfaction and happiness in life, what King Solomon, who did it better than any, would tell you is it doesn't satisfy. That's your point. Living for self, if if I had a sentence to come up with, to apply to our lives from King Solomon right here in verses 1 through 11, it would go like this. Living for, that's key, living for self-indulgent pleasure, living for self-indulgent pleasure and possession ultimately ultimately leaves us unsatisfied. It not only leaves us unsatisfied, do you know the rest of the story of Solomon? We talked about it a little bit last week, but all this stuff, Remember what God said to him after he gave him wisdom, he also gave him riches, but he warned him, didn't he? He said, listen, these 700 wives, it's, it's wrong, we know it's wrong from Genesis 1 and 2, but he not only did that for pleasure, he did that for power to advance his kingdom. If you start looking at the names in 1 Kings 2 through chapter 2 through 11 of the wives that he took, they were most, many of them were foreign king's daughters, And so he was not only experiencing pleasure, he was expanding his kingdom. And God warned him and he said, you do this, be careful, here's what's going to happen. Those wives are going to turn, who believe in other false gods, and and false gods are going to turn your heart away from the living God. That's exactly what happened. You know what kind of houses he also built? Not just houses that he built for all of them, he built them temples. So they could go and worship their false god. And he would go with them. And you know what happened in the end with all the possessions and all these pleasures? It wasn't just that he was unsatisfied, it ruined him and it ruined the kingdom. So let me ask you again What do you need to be happy? Do you need pleasure? Men, I know what you're thinking. I don't have 700 wives, I don't have 700 or 300 concubines, let's be real here. How many times do you click on an image of a woman who's not your wife online? Pleasure. Ladies, this is low-hanging fruit, I know, I'm going to be in trouble here. Ladies, do you need 200 pair of shoes? Do you need 100 dresses? Do you need 50 purses? Watch out, man, you're getting in trouble. I'm already in trouble. Do we need all that? I don't need a lot of room in my closet, just a little bit. My wife doesn't do this, by the way. I'm the one who spends in my family. Listen, what happens with pleasure and possessions, we think we're consumers. We hear that term all the time. We're just consumers, but here's the reality. We often are the ones being consumed. Aren't we? And you're, maybe you're thinking right now, you know what? You know, we're nowhere near Solomon. Maybe the people in River Oaks and Houston or Tanglewood or somewhere down there. That's their problem. I did this search last night. I did a search for storage units right here. They're like, in the three-mile radius, they're like 20 storage units, just in like a couple-mile radius. You know the coolest name that I found? I think if I ever needed a storage unit, I'd use this one. It's called the Stuff Hotel. I don't know if they, like, throw in continental breakfast or they turn down the old couch or or what they do. It's right here on Co-Lane if you ever need one. All right? We got lots of stuff. It's not just the people down there or the people in the woodlands. Magnolia folk. Let me tell you something. Tomorrow morning, if you're traveling on 1488... Take a look on the south side of 1488 when you go by the Goodwill tomorrow morning. You know what you're going to find? There's a couple parking places. There's this island that goes to the back. There's going to be five, probably five feet worth of stuff laying there that at one point was somebody's treasure that became their junk. And then there's an 18-wheeler every Monday morning sitting right there. You've seen it. We like our stuff. We like our possessions. How's this working out for us? All our stuff, all our possessions, all our seeking after pleasure. Maybe, like Solomon, you've tried the comedy club, and maybe you're the funny guy. But maybe you use that just to cover up the pain of reality. I remember as a youth pastor a kid, and he was hilarious, y'all. He should be on Comedy Club. I don't think he's there. He was the most hilarious kid I've ever had in in, in youth group. Patrick, you were funny too, right? He was hilarious. But you know, when you dig a little further, he would admit. I remember one day at lunch, just weeping. Big football guy. Played college football. Just admitting, "I, I do that to cover up all the pain. So I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to talk about it. Comedy club doesn't work. And maybe it's strong drink. I don't know if you knew this, but in the evangelical church today, the silent epidemic in the evangelical church is alcoholism. If you ask any pastor or any counselor, it's under the surface oftentimes, but it's there So maybe it's strong drink from turning from all the trouble or the hardship of your day to turn there. Solomon turned there too, and it didn't work. Or maybe it's just stuff, or partying, or vacations, or house, or cars, or toys. Ultimately, it's unsatisfying. You just need more and more and more. This summer, when I started sabbatical, after a few weeks of figuring out what to do, projects, because I'm a doer, and I was cleaning out some stuff, and y'all, I, I realized I had way too many golf clubs. Here we go. I couldn't believe how many golf clubs I just had laying around. I wasn't using anymore, and you know what I did? I sold them all on Marketplace, and some friends were going, hey, are you quitting? Like, this sabbatical thing, or now you're quitting? Golf. No, I'm just, I'm just getting rid of this so I can get another set, all right? <laughs> I needed... A new set of irons, no I wanted a new set of irons, they're awesome by the way. (laughs) But seriously, this is the way we are, temporal things trying to fill more and more and more. I push pretty hard with y'all, it's me too, it affects me too. It's not only unsatisfying but it's destructive. How's this working for us? Maybe we need to take inventory. Maybe we need to take inventory of our stuff. Maybe we need to take inventory of how we seek pleasure. But maybe you're sitting here also thinking, "But yeah, but pastor, doesn't God give laughter? Yes. Doesn't God in the right way, in the right amount, give us wine to enjoy? Yes. Doesn't God... Give us food to enjoy. Yes, take your wife out on a date night. Spend $50 on a steak and $20 on the side. This should cost like $3. Do it. Enjoy it as a gift from his hand, right-sized. So, self-indulgence. Solomon Pushes into the self-indulgence of excessive stuff and excessive pleasure. And oh, by the way, the gift of sex, sexual pleasure. Kids first through fifth are over there. It is good. It is right. To be enjoyed in the right place in a marriage between a man and a woman. It's a beautiful thing. It is a right thing. It's something to be enjoyed as a gift from God's hand. So he turns from self-indulgent pleasure and possession. And the second thing he talks about is a very different way to live. It's more a self-disciplined life. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, hey, self-indulgence, maybe a little bit, that's not really not, that's just really not me. I work hard. I'm disciplined with pleasure. I like to learn and grow. What about that? Well, Solomon did that too. Look at it. Verse 12 through 23. This really is going to cover some area we covered last week, so I'm not going to spend as much time on it if you're wondering about time. Verse 12, let's look at it. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, just a true statement, and there is more gain in light than darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet. I mean, basically he's saying, it's good to be wise and make good decisions. Sowing and reaping, there's less consequence. Be a fool, and yet. This is rough. And yet I perceive that the same event, he's going to unpack what the same event is later, happens to all of them, the fool and the wise. Then I said in my heart, here it is again, So he's contemplating. What happens to the fool will happen also to me, the wise. Why then have I also, have I been so very wise? And I said to my heart that this is also vanity. Under the sun, not informed by God, not informed by Bible. This is vanity. For one of the wise, as the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. You have long been forgotten. Remember chapter one last week? You forget about me. People forget about you. You live and you die. And people forget. Mark Twain, remember last week? People remember you for an hour and forget you for a lifetime. So he's considering this. And then he says this, and here's the event. How the wise dies in the end, just like the fool. It's a life under the sun without God. So here's the way it made him feel. I hated, strong word, I hated life because of what done under the sun, was grievous for me, and all is vanity and striving after wind. And so hedonism and materialism doesn't satisfy. Wisdom or intellectualism at the end of the day doesn't satisfy either, even when you have all the right answers. And then he turns to workaholism again. Look at it. Verse 18. I hated all my toil, for I toil under the sun, and maybe you're saying amen, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, It's not going to last. I don't know what's going to happen when I give this thing to my kids. Ever been there? And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up for despair. Getting more encouraging as we go here. For all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled and wisdom and knowledge and skill must, here it is again, leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. You ever had this in your home? I did this to my parents. You get to the age where you, low, okay, my parents are going to die and they're going to leave me their stuff. What am I going to get? You ever done that with your parents, kids? You ever done that with mom and dad? And your kid comes to you and you're like, hey, dad, I'd really like the uh, gym equipment out in the cave, you know, when you die. Or I'd really like this or I'd really like that. And and you just kind of look at them like, I'm still here. And oh, by the way, because you asked, I'm giving it to your sister. That's a weird conversation. Jesus experienced that with the disciples, by the way, where they're like, hey, after you're gone... Who's going to be the best? Who's going to get what? But that's what Solomon's saying. Like, I've worked my whole life for all of this, and I've got to leave this with my kids. I hope they're wise. I hope they're not foolish. But I have, it's not just leaving it to them, but it's also, I have no control. I have no control what happens with all that I did and all that I worked for. And he keeps going, this also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all his tools striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all the days are full of sorrow and work, his vexation? He's having a rough time. All his vanity. Question. Did he have reason to be concerned? Do you remember Jeroboam and Rehoboam, his sons? Not only did possessions and pleasure cost him the kingdom, 1 Kings 14, what we learn is all that stuff gets wiped out. Some of it because of Solomon and some of it because his sons weren't wise. They were fools. And the foreign kings and armies brought the armored truck and took 2.2 trillion. Backed it up at the treasury and they took it. And all those homes, not theirs anymore. All that land, not theirs anymore. He had a reason to be concerned. They lost it. They lost it all. Pleasures, possession, wisdom, and work. Well, intellectualism, workaholism, hedonism, lots of isms here. It's terrible if you're going to pursue life for those reasons. It's a terrible creed to pursue life. I want to talk about maybe one particularly for us, workaholism, just a little bit. Again, clarity. Does God want us to learn and grow and be learners and pursue wisdom? Amen. Does he care about the way that we work, that we work with all of our heart as working for the Lord and not for man, that our work testifies and gives witness to who we are? Absolutely. Absolutely workaholism is different. I don't know about you, but I remember the kid in our, a kid that I grew up with. And in a small town, there's a few really wealthy people. And we always wanted to go over to his house. It was fun. There was a pool. There was space. It was just a cool house. It was a crib. But the older he got, the more you realized, man, he had much rather his dad show up at his football game then be at work trying to provide for his family his wife would much rather have him home at night than working late into the night where he's not present are you chasing what really matters Even the good gifts that God's given you under the sun. Are you tracing things like work success? Because that's what's going to bring you significance. And again, let's clarify, God gives us wisdom. We don't want to be fools. He wants us to learn. Listen, I wouldn't be able to fix anything in my house without turning on YouTube DIY things. Okay? You've got to learn. You've got to grow. You ought to. It's a good thing. Does God care about work? Yes. Hard work. Right-sized. Let me give you some hope in the last few verses of Ecclesiastes 2. Look at verse 26. Here's here's where you find the hope. Here's where you find the right-sized answer. There is nothing better. The word better is not in a lot of manuscripts. There is nothing for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw, look at this, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, God, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, pleases God. God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy. He's added it. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering, collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity. striving after wind. See, we've said that living for self indulgent pleasure and self indulgent possessions doesn't satisfy. We've said that living for wisdom, human wisdom, and work leaves us disheartened. But listen, this is hope here. Living to know God, Himself, God for God, seeking the face of God, satisfies the soul. That's what Solomon's saying. And it allows us to enjoy all these good gifts, i.e., pleasure, possessions, work, wisdom, etc. Do you see it? We sang about it. The gifts from the hand of God. This is his observation when looking back on all of his life, the ups and the downs. It's interesting, isn't it? When we pursue temporal. For temporal sake, we get nothing. Actually, less than nothing. Nothing, Because we destroy, oftentimes, what we have. But when we pursue the eternal, the creator, he often throws in the good gifts. And I don't mean some prosperity weird gospel that says if I have enough faith in God, he will just give me all the things that Solomon gave me. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that we can put temporal things in its right place and enjoy them for what they really are, God's good gifts, amen? I want to show you some Bible about this because maybe you've forgotten it. Maybe we need it because the temptation of pursuing pleasure and possession and work is so much. Maybe we need to be reminded of what God says about God. Psalm 16, verse 11 says this. This is David, who's likely told his son this. Psalm 16, 11, You make known to me the path of life. What brings life? In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where does pleasure and satisfaction come from? It comes from seeking the face of God. Let me give you a couple more Matthew 5, 6, New Testament, Jesus, this is the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, God's righteous, for they shall be what? Satisfied. How about Mark 8, 36, Jesus is talking to the crowd and specifically talking to the disciples and he says, take up your cross and follow me. If you lose your life, you'll gain it. And then he says this, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Solomon had it. To gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. Great question. And then the last one. Philippians 3, 7 through 10. This is kind of a life passage for me. You're going to have to hear it a lot. You've probably seen me go here a lot. Paul's given his resume as a Pharisee, which gave him power and success status, and even financial gain. In the end, what does Paul's balance sheet look like? He gave all that up for Christ. Here's his balance sheet. Whatever gain I had, all that we just described, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because it's surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ. Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law so he didn't work for it, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might what? That I might know him. That's hard for us to see sometimes and remember sometimes in a world full of, of people seeking pleasure, possession, work, intellect. It doesn't ultimately satisfy. It's a good gift, but it doesn't ultimately satisfy. Christ does. And here's the thing. Christ is the good gift. Look at this text back in Ecclesiastes here. It's interesting. You kind of got to interpret this. Um, In verse 26, it says, For the one who pleases God, so there's somebody who pleases God, But for the sinner, he's given work to do. Who pleases God? The Bible says nobody pleases God. No, not one. Human. But then, God says about his son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Remember the transfiguration? This is the one. I'm well pleased. The only one who pleases God is his son, Jesus Christ. The son of God and the son of man and lived a perfect life full of wisdom and died on a cross. The toil was done by Jesus. The work, the labor was done by Jesus to give you life as a gift. That's the beauty of this. The greatest gift that you can enjoy first is Christ. And then the rest of it is thrown in. Isn't that what Jesus says? Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added to you. What are all these things? Your needs. Things that you need. That's the beauty of the gospel. That Christ is the gift. You receive the gift. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. And when you receive this ultimate gift, that opens access for you to know God the Father, that your sins are forgiven. The wrath that sat on you is taken by Jesus on a cross. Justice is satisfied. Love is satisfied. And now you can know God and enjoy All these gifts. Well, I don't know about you and what it looked like for many of you who know Christ. Before you came to faith in him, but I often picture myself, before I came to Christ when I was 20 years old, the picture I draw of myself is, you know the videos that you see of the fish, or maybe you've been to the beach and you've seen this? The big fish coming near shore to find the little fish. And it's swimming around trying to to get this fish unsuccessfully most of the time. The little fish is faster. But what are you concerned about when you're watching that video or you're on the beach? You're concerned that the fish is going to beach himself. And that's what usually happens. It beaches itself and it flails around out of the water. See, that's what life is like under the sun. We're like fish chasing after these little things. And it beaches us, but we keep flapping around, trying to get it over and over and over. As I was preparing this sermon this week, it's a lot, y'all. There's a lot here that we need to look at in our own lives, but I couldn't also help thinking about when I was lost and I was pursuing pleasure as a college kid and stuff and performance and how empty ultimately that was, their highs and lows, how empty that was. There are people all around you that are there. There's a guy who moved his family to Switzerland in the 50s and was there for 10 years as a missionary, 10 years as a missionary and his daughter. Switzerland started going to college. And this is, started going to college in the 60s in Switzerland. This is post-war, post-Christian. Liberalism was rampant. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody's trying to figure out things, particularly pleasure or intellect and what's true and what brings meaning in life. That was going on in the 60s here. Some of y'all were there. Not many of y'all were there. But in Europe, it's just ahead of the game. And this freshman college girl going to philosophy 101 class and science class would begin to interact. And her classmates noticed that she just had a a contentment about her and answering questions and that they were trying to figure out. and, And the search for meaning and the search for life were... At that point, specifically in Europe, there was no due north for people. They were looking for meeting inside of themselves with their feelings and their own thoughts. That's what we're in right now here. But she had some answers, and she was confident, but gracious, and she was content. And so many of her classmates began to go, hey, tell me more. And she's like, well, my dad, where did you learn all this? My dad, can we meet your dad? And so she began on the weekends to take her friends home to her missionary family, Francis Schaefer, And began to have open dialogue with students, and more and more students came searching for meaning of life, significance and value, and they began to teach them the gospel and the truth of God's word and Christian worldview to help them with these kinds of questions that we're dealing with today. And it became so big, and it was such an open place for people to honestly ask, shown compassion, but given truth, like, we got we to gotta do something here. And so they began a ministry out of their home in the Alps of Switzerland called Labri. Labrie is French for the word, the shelter. It gave people who are searching, flapping around on the beach, an opportunity to figure out what gives them life. That ministry is still going today all over the world. So let me ask you, what is your posture toward those as a Christian Who you see on the beach chasing their tail, chasing the small things, flapping around. And maybe it looks ugly toward you sometimes. Think about the people who try to help the fish back into the water. they often the people who get bitten. What's your posture toward a lost world who needs answers to these kinds of questions? Who need to be loved and cared for? And sometimes, most of the time, we we just got our, our gloves up rather than our gloves on. So let me ask you this. Have you found the shelter that you can only find in Christ? And are you giving shelter to others who need it? Let me pray.